All right, good morning. My name is Dustin. I'm on staff here at Huntington Community Church, and it's, man, it's always such an honor to be able to preach with, with our church family. So let's go ahead and get started. Uh, turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. The title of the message is, But They Will Not Get Very Far. Now, that's going to make sense once we get to verse 9, that phrase. But I, I do want to set up a little bit of context, especially since we usually just go verse by verse through a series. Obviously, we're taking a break from Hebrews to um, address this passage. But I, I think the book of 2 Timothy, but also this passage in particular, is really crucial for, our, for the life of our church right now. Uh, and here's why. I, I feel like this past week has just been absolutely huge for us. Like, we're raising money to get our facility ready to reach more of Huntington. We kind of utilized our location for the first time in like a really effective kingdom-building way with our gift away, and we would be ignorant to think that we're doing these things, reaching dark places in our city, to not think that the enemy's going to attack. That, that things aren't always going to go well, and especially when we're advancing the kingdom of God in our city, in our personal lives as we get closer to Christ, but also reaching people with the love of God, things are going to get hard. So, 2 Timothy, the book in and of itself, is Paul writing to Timothy and saying, listen, things are going to get hard, but you have to stay persevering. You have to keep making disciples. You have to stay on mission. So I think it's appropriate to look at this text, but even more specifically, this, this chapter, chapter 3, the first part of it, is going to address the types of enemies, the type of evil, the types of things that could go wrong for us as a church. So we want to go and get the first three verses before this chapter to set us up. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.24 says this, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So right off the bat, I just want to bring up a few things on this text before we go to chapter 3. We learn some really crucial things about people that are not in Christ. One of the things that we learn right there in the text, people who do not follow Christ, number one, they are ignorant about the things that matter the most. Now listen, I'm not saying that people who don't follow Christ are not smart or they are ignorant about things in life, but they are ignorant about the things that matter most, namely what life is all about and ultimately the glory of God. Number two, right here, going against the kingdom of darkness, people that do not follow Christ. Number two, they are ensnared by the devil. Um, another word for ensnared is trapped. So you have to think in our our, our ultimate goal is not just to put on events, but ultimately to see these events connect us to people who are far from God and share the gospel with them. And something you've got to know as we go into this mission is that people who do not know Christ are ensnared by the devil. Number three, they are doing the devil's will. Now this sounds weird, right? Because it, it kind of seems, quite frankly, demonic. And it seems scary, but the fact of the matter is, is that what the devil ultimately wants for people is for them not to follow Christ. So people who do not know him. So that's you this morning. If you don't know Christ, you aren't following him, you are 
ignorant about the things that matter most. You are ensnared by the devil and you are doing the devil's will no matter how many good things you are doing. These are true of you if you were not a saved person. Here's the scary part for us, is that if you are a saved person, true things, that you have come to your senses about things that matter most, you are no longer ensnared ultimately by the devil, but you can still struggle with doing the devil's will every time you sin. Still though, and and even though these are true about us, the main thrust of this passage is to look at the enemy, or as this um, chapter, verse 24 says, the opponents that we're going against, it's important to know really what the enemy is like. And because it says we're commanded to gently correct. So the whole point of this, it is fair to say that it's helpful to know what we are up against in this battle. Um, and this passage, it's repetitive, but I, I need you to understand that this shows us the degree of evil that we are battling. So in chapter 3, we're going to see a list of evils that people who are out of their senses and snared by the devil and doing his will are capable of and are currently doing. And we're going to see what God does about it. Now, this next passage in 1 John is going to show us a little bit of context as to um, how this passage will make sense for us. So it says this, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us. This is key. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Here's quite frankly potentially the most devastating part as we are continuing to grow as the people of God advancing the kingdom here in our city is that persecution may come from the outside but clearly there's going to be enemy work among us that there's going to be people that are of us in the people of God but are not actually saved there will be people that claim Christ that do not actually belong to him and we've been learning about this some in Hebrews, right? That some people are just so close, but just not quite in the rest of God, or not quite in that salvation. Now, Jesus says it this way. Um, this is one of the few parables that we have that he actually explains it for us, so it, it works out. So I'm going to give you a quick summary of how Jesus teaches on this idea of people that look like they follow him, but are still a part of the people who truly do. He, he says this, that the kingdom of God is like a sower who sows seeds into a field. And while the field workers are working, an enemy comes and sows weeds into that field. Both plants grow, and then one of the workers asks, how can there be weeds? We only planted good seed. And the master says to let both grow until the harvest time. Send the ones who will reap the harvest, burn the weeds, and keep the good wheat in the barn couple verses later, he explains this. So let this hopefully guide us a little bit into what this can look like. In in Matthew 13, 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. That's 
part of that world is Huntington, what we're trying to reach. And, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all cases of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Notice that even Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, look, both unrighteous people, righteous people are going to grow and thrive in this world, and at the end of the age we're going to see who really belongs. And those who are in Christ, which are lawbreakers who have been forgiven, will have a glorious future. Shining like the sun with their father. And those who are not in Christ, lawbreakers who have not been forgiven by him, will burn. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says one more piece here to to build our introduction. He demonstrates that some of these weeds, so some of the people in that identify themselves with the visible church, that claim to follow Christ, are going to work really hard to look like good seed. You guys probably know this passage. Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On, his, um, um, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Only those who actually obey the will of their Father, namely, repent and put their faith in Christ, are going to shine like the sun in the kingdom. Some of who are, sw- are sown by the enemy, or people not in Christ, will look like true Christians, but they aren't because they do not do the Father's will, and their end is burning in hell, or the fiery furnace at the end of the age. This is why what we do is the plurality of elders and taking church membership so seriously here is so important. Is that all of us, people who are not in Christ, even the ones that work hard to look like it, the ones that are truly following Christ are going to grow and thrive in this world and everything will be sorted out at the end. But we still have ministry to do. And one of the ways that the devil will try to attack our church, clearly in scripture, is by sowing seeds of the evil one that could rise up among us. So just to recap, before we go to the passage. People are sinful. Saved people are sinful, but repent from their sin and trust in Christ. Unsaved people can look like saved people on the outside, but they're not saved by their good moral works. At the end of the age, every sinner apart from Christ will burn, and at the end of the age, every truly righteous person will will shine like the sun. So, with all of this information, with Hopefully more events reaching out to our city in the future with more disciple making to do. We step into this battle. Offering repentance and forgiveness in Christ and awaiting the end of the age when all sin will finally be gone. So, let's pray before we go into this passage. Arm yourself um, with this knowledge that we are in war. Things will get hard. Persecution from the outside evil ones sowing seeds of discord and evil people 
from the inside, and we need help to do this. So let's pray. Uh, Father, I pray right now that as we look into 2 Timothy chapter 3, that you would make us look more like your son. That we would not see the evil in this world, even by people claiming the name of Christ and shy back into fear and, and worry and anxiety, but that we would press forward, pushing back darkness as a church family. And I pray that as you speak through your word, by your spirit, you would do something in us today that would have ripple effects for eternity. Father, we need help. I need help. We're just needy people. So, Father, do a work this morning. It's in your name I pray. Amen. All right, so chapter 3, verse 1 says this. But understand this, that in these last days there will come time of difficulty. Now, that first phrase should already be making us wonder because Timothy, in the, in the midst of this battle that he's going through to lead this church against the evil in the world, Paul says, listen, Timothy, there's something that is absolutely crucial for you to understand about our mission to push back darkness. Remember, the world is sinful. We can't change that, but we can offer the message of hope for those wanting out of their sin and in Christ. So this, sometimes there's, you know, super practical passages. This is what you do in the mission of God. And sometimes there's passages that are more aimed toward arming your mind with things you need to know. And this passage is something we need to know as the people of God. And here it is. That in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Now, when we see last days, I don't want us to get out the left behind movies and apocalyptic charts. That it's, it's easy to go there, right? Because it's like, oh, last days, you know, well, the world's kind of, you know, Jerusalem's got named the capital again, so maybe there's some things going on. But it's important to know that in the New Testament, that phrase last days is not necessarily talking about the definite last days that we see in our charts of Revelation, It is an all-encompassing term that means the time in between the first coming of Christ and his death and the second coming of Christ when he comes back to end all evil. So what he's saying, basically, now, ever since the church has been commissioned at Pentecost to go make disciples of all nations, we're in the last days. Now, clearly, even though that someday we will actually be in the last days, like it's easy to say, well, it might not be now, could be in 3,000 years or whatever. At, at some point, we actually will be in the last days. Uh, but until that day, I think, I think the idea that we're always sort of in this era of the last days should create some things in us. Number one, it should create an urgency in us that, that we know that the Bible says that we're in the last days. There's people to reach, disciples to make, ministry to do. It should create some sort of urgency because one day, the last day, will be the last day and there will be no more ministry to do. It should create an expectation of Christ's return. So to make you excited to know we're in the last, we're in the last days. Jesus is coming back soon. It, it should create in us an excitement that, that this war against sin and death will be over soon. We're in these last days. We need to understand, and here's what's going to happen in these last days. There will come times of difficulty. Now, John Piper, John MacArthur, and probably other smart theologians named John um, say that a better translation of these times of difficulty is actually dangerous. So 
for, for what it's worth, it's in these last days there will come times of danger or dangerous times or difficulty. And remember, persecution coming from the outside, but false teaching, false Christians, and sinful living by true Christians will attack us from the inside out. It's a dangerous place. You don't need much time watching the news to know that this world is sick and messed up, and even people who claim the name of Christ have done some horrible, horrible things. So our battle in this danger is to keep the church holy and pure, unstained from the world as we push through to make disciples. And honestly, when I get like this, I'm, I'm a natural worrier. I'll, I'll spiral into panic and wondering how we're going to figure out, you know, 10 years from now if this happens and, you know, is everything going to just end? <laughs> uh, my big question when I think about the evil in this world is how are we going to win? Right? Like, we're told, okay, there's evil on the outside and we've got to step forward. But then all of a sudden we see all throughout the New Testament that somehow even in our own walls, even in our own family, there's going to be people that act like they're a part of us that really aren't. And then I look at myself and I see so much evil in my own personal life. It just makes me groan with hope that one day the last days will actually end. How are we going to win? Understand this, in the last days, times of difficulty, and the next three verses, or four verses, show us why things will be difficult and dangerous. It says we're for people. So for that argument word, that things are going to be dangerous, for means here's why. So the reason that in the last days things are difficult and dangerous is this reason. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, Arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. So that first phrase, remember, the the reason things will be difficult for the church is because people will be sinful. People are going to reject the will of God. They're going to chase after the will of the devil. Remember, they're ensnared by him. And people are ultimately going to be worshiping themselves and not the creator. Romans teaches us, we've gone through this on a Sunday morning with Adam before, that Romans shows us the essence of sin are people worshiping creation rather than creator. Things are going to get hard. Now, it's interesting that we have this list of these types of people, and then the, the command for us as the church is to avoid them. Now, that seems like not a good ministry strategy, right? Like, all right, so there's all these horrible, sinful people way out there. All right, we've got a plan. The new mission for our church is that we want people to know God, find community, avoid people, and avoid people, and just keep our heat right? This sounds, this sounds strange, but it's important that I think this command shows us something very specific about these types of sinners, that they're in the church. Because this can't mean that we don't hang out with them and evangelize and try to reach people who are far from God. We must, and, and we, this is why I love, one of the reasons I love this church and, and church discipline, that, that we must 
after we've reached out to them with repentance and they have shown themselves to not be lovers of God, but they are lovers of themselves, lovers of pleasure instead of God, we must avoid them in an effort to show them that they aren't a part of us if they're claiming Christ. Remember, we as a church can be influenced by sin among us. And, and all throughout Hebrews, we have not been afraid to say that these warning passages like this, we're not going to shy away from. We want them to scare you. You can be influenced. Don't get prideful and think that you are above these things on this list. People are claiming Christ and living this out way more than with no repentance, with no love for God. What we do is we avoid them because it could be the most loving thing we do for them. Avoid them in such a way that they know they are not of Christ so that hopefully they will see their sinful condition and ultimately come to him. And we'd be remiss to not make sure we don't use verses like this to check our own hearts because sometimes the avoiding such people could be you. Right? Like, we must repent of these things with everything we have. There is a, also in 2 Timothy, it says to flee from sin. Avoid such people. There is no trying to engage or tame a pet sin. There is, if you look like this, there's things on that list that you look like. Repent. Run. Avoid. Get out. Because I don't want us to read this, these verses and all of a sudden start thinking of all of our friends, maybe even in this church, in this room, who are not as spiritual as you. The point is that you should be heartbroken for them. You don't read this and think, all right, I got my list of people I'm avoiding after church now. Be heartbroken, step into these relationships with the gospel, but if they reject or perpetuate a false gospel with their lives or doctrine, avoid them in such a way that we do not bring reproach on the church, because it could be the most loving thing that you do. Now, rather than going through every single word in this list, we're going to look at three of the major categories in these four verses that I think kind of encompass all the other ones. So, the first kind of big, broad category is that people, in verses verse 2a, people are going to be lovers of self. Now, it's No question that people in the world right now love themselves. We can see this overtly in our our world's push to accept sinful lifestyles in the name of love or in the name of tolerance. Um, But we also see this, and this is probably one of the most scary, is that we see this in our world's obsession with self-esteem. The, the answer to your problem, the reason you don't feel quite right in your emotions, these things, the, the, the problem that you have is that you don't love yourself enough. Now listen, this makes sense for the world, but if for the church, if we're even subtly preaching this kind of message, we are not preaching the gospel. The gospel is a call to deny yourself. The, co- the gospel is a call to die to yourself, not love yourself more. The answer to your emotional, spiritual problems is not to have more self-esteem. It is to have more Christ-esteem. You esteem Him higher, not yourself. Pride is never an answer to sin and suffering. And, and guys, this is terrifying. Like Being and counseling in my background, this is pushed in every way so subtly. 
build up self-esteem. Now, some people get mad. I don't mean that I want all of our kids and all of you to hate yourself. I don't want that. But there is a way in which this creeps in, and all of a sudden that you think the way to get yourself better is to somehow concentrate on yourself more, and the Bible teaches the exact opposite. People who love themselves in this way see other people as means to get what they think they think they deserve and what they see as good. You know that? And when we say people need more self-esteem, what we're telling them is go get people to affirm you. And basically what we're saying is go treasure the opinion of other people above what God says. Accepting yourself and loving yourself may temporarily, temporarily relieve symptoms of our issues, but nothing compares to the love and acceptance of God that only comes through denying yourself. So, in these last days, things are going to be dangerous because people are going to be lovers of self. Next kind of big categories. We have lovers of self that we've got to guard ourselves against. We want to love God and love people. Not self. Other people's interests ahead of ours. The next kind of big category is found in verse 4 is that people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, this kind of piggybacks the first category that we looked at. Uh, this, this can basically encompass our culture's obsession with getting what we want when we want it. Our world works hard to teach us that getting what we think feels good as fast as possible is what is best. Uh, and honestly, like, what else is our obsession with sex and pornography other than just loving pleasure rather than how God would have us find pleasure? Now once again, keep this in mind. This makes sense for people who are ensnared by the devil. The danger, we lose our witness, we lose our power as a church when this stuff sneaks in to our lives. People are lovers of self and ultimately that will make them lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Third, last kind of big category here. And this one is, I think, the most deceptive for me, at least is verse 5. It says this, For the people having the appearance of godliness and denying its power. So we have the lovers of, of self, and then we have the lovers of pleasure, but then we have these people that look godly and deny its power. So here's an allusion to the idea that false Christians, evil people, can look like followers of Christ. They can have an appearance of external morality, but deny the power to actually hate sin and supernaturally desire to glorify God with their lives in obedience. Now, in Timothy's day, you could see how false teachers could fit into this. They would have flash and show and, and look like the, the high people of society, but inside they're rotting out because they actually hate God and they're using the people they minister to. Have the appearance of godliness and deny its power. So, three main categories there, right? Like, lovers of self, lovers of pleasure rather than God, or having the appearance of godliness and deny its power. And if these people keep claiming Christ, we must avoid them in the name of loving them and for the purity of the church. And we must repent of our desire to be like this in our old flesh too. Like, I hope nobody 
heard me read that list of sins and thought that you were just good on all of them. Like, all of us in some way love ourself. All of us in some way love pleasure rather than God. And all of us in some way, unfortunately, and probably the most heartbreaking, we put on a show externally but have sins eating us out in the inside. These sins lead people to death. People who hold on to these as good will end up doing unthinkable horrors in our world. Because here's the fact of the matter. Is that terrorism doesn't happen in the name of religion or pastors getting in trouble with minors if people don't have an appearance of godliness but deny its power. Child abuse, divorce, and adultery doesn't happen if people love God instead of pleasure and death and depression and anxiety and gossip and all of this mess doesn't happen if people love God and seek acceptance from him through Christ rather than self-love. These are the categories we must avoid in ourselves and avoid as a church. So then the argument compounds. We see the next two verses says this, for among them, so among the people who love self, love pleasure, appearance of godliness, but deny its power. Among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of truth. So, even in the visible church, people who claim Christ, and in this context in particular, commentators say that these false teachers were going into houses um, and, and really targeting women that were overcome with guilt and shame. So you can imagine a guy who comes in as a false teacher offering this pseudo-forgiveness, how he would take advantage of that, right? Like, if you're guilty and desperate, you'll almost believe anything to make yourself feel better. And, and they were crushed and under the weight of their own sin, without self-control and never settling on the absolute truth of God. And the, these guys would offer them a, a can of spiritual goods and, and capture them. This is disgusting. And it happens on certain Christian TV channels with the quote-unquote Christian guy who puts on a pseudo facade of following Christ and uses that to exploit girls. Now, Here's the cool part about the people of God, is that we see this, and it says that those who creep into households and capture weak women, we can look at that and not read and think, oh, it's because women are weak that they, they just are. They're the ones that get captured. That, like, ladies, in your walk with Christ in the life of this church, your job is to be strong women, not, not weak that gets led away by various passions. And this doesn't just apply to women, it applies obviously to all of us. That all of us, when we're led astray by passions, even those of us that have been walking with Christ for as long as we can remember, if we're led away by various passions Christ, we will be deceived and captured. So I think it's important though to emphasize in this passage that a Second Timothy commanded job of women is to battle evil, be strong women, give your guilt and shame to your Savior, and follow Him as you destroy sin in you and dive deep into the knowledge of God. 
It's important to know that. It's for men. It's for women. All of us are not above this. It's part of all of our fight. Verse 8. So we see a specific way that this sin overflows into capturing weak people led astray by various passions. And then we get an Old Testament example of what this looks like to help us out. So verse 8 says this. Just as Jannies and Jambres, I'm not sure if that's exactly how you pronounce it, but we'll go with that. Jannies and Jambres opposed Moses. So these men, so these type of men that we're talking about, that love themselves and not God, also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. So most scholars would agree that in the tradition, historians say that these Jannies and Jambres characters are actually some of Pharaoh's magicians during the Exodus story. So if you remember, Moses and Aaron were doing miracles to prove that Yahweh was God and that he was powerful. And then these magician, you guys have probably seen Prince of Egypt, right? Like they can kind of do what the Moses and Aaron are doing, right? And this is just a, such a weird throwback in our biblical story, right? Like we're talking about these people that look godly, that aren't, and then we bring up Pharaoh's magicians. Men corrupted in mind, disqualified regarding the faith. But I want you to see that just because they were able to do those signs by way of dark magic, those magicians clearly did not belong to the God of Israel, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Evil people will oppose truth and are corrupted in mind. And the worst part about this example in particular is that it's packaged as good in our world, and it only leads to death. One of the reasons that people are still on their way to hell is because they oppose true things about God. So that's eight verses of dark. Like I thought we were going to talk about, you know, how do we win this? Like what do we do now other than avoid this? Look at verse 9. So it builds on. Like, Timothy, things are going to get hard. Huntington Community Church, Things are going to get hard. Sin's going to creep in your own life and the life of the church. You've got to repent of that. There's going to be sons of the evil one that try to influence us. And they're going to do all these things. They're going to love pleasure, love self, look like godly people, but deny its power. They're going to be just like Pharaoh's magicians, capturing weak women, corrupted in mind, disqualified regarding the faith. And then a promise comes to us. It's so powerful. Paul writes to Timothy and says, in the midst of all this darkness and chaos, but they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Evil in this world will not get very far because nobody stops our God. These guys, Jannies and Jambres, either died in a plague or died in the Red Sea, most likely. Either way, they lost. And it may seem like sometimes with all the evil in the world, in the church, in politics, on the world stage, it may seem like the people of God are losing this war, or it looks like it's slipping towards the bad guys. But keep this in mind as an absolutely trustworthy word. They will not get far. Their folly will be plain for all. And it's appropriate for us as the people of God to celebrate the truth that evil will not get very far. But there's even something beautiful when you relate this to the gospel. Because 
all of us who are in Christ right now, God didn't let you get very far either. For the saved person, you ran from God. You were loving yourself. You were loving pleasure in God and His sovereign will sent His Son to die for you and by His grace awakened you to that fact. You did not get very far. In just the right time, Jesus came to die for you and rise again to defeat all of the evil that the devil used to ensnare you. You were like this, but you are now free because God did not let you get very far. For the person in here that doesn't love Christ, doesn't follow Him, maybe somebody like dragged you here, you were tricked into coming. God, if you will repent right now, trust Him. He won't let you get very far either. Like t- Today could be the day that we can say about you, God didn't let you get very far. Yeah, for 25, 30 years, you wandered and you loved yourself, but God got you by His grace. And for this evil world, for those of us that are in Christ and we're looking at people we want to reach and ultimately pushing back darkness as a church, how are we supposed to do something about this overwhelming enemy? Here's, here's what we do. You offer hope, repentance in Christ. Ultimately, you make disciples. A revival will start in our city and our church with individual people deciding that the only hope for the evil in this world is our evil-defeating Savior. And as the band comes back up, I just want to read three texts for you that celebrate the culmination of this promise that evil will not get very far. You're not going to be able to turn there. It's going to go fast. So I'll put them on the screen. This is when it's all said and done and all the ministry is done and we're still wondering how, how is this evil going to be over? What is our hope as the people of God? 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this, Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And we fast forward to the end of time. We get to see this. Revelation 20. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. One chapter later, we see a promise about the end when this will not go any farther. says this about Jesus. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So we hide these promises in our heart, knowing that God didn't let us get very far. He won't let the evil in this world get very far. And at the end of the day, in our battle of making disciples, we win. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us sing as men and women in here who are strong in you, that supernaturally you would make us just have so much confidence on the fact that evil can't win. It can't win in us. It can't win in our church. It can't win in our city, in this world, because you are in control. So, Father, I pray that you would kill the desires in us to love ourselves, to love pleasure, 
to put on a front of godliness, but ultimately deny its power. I pray that we would sing as people who did not get very far in our sin because your grace awakened us to the reality of your son's death and resurrection. Father, help us to sing and celebrate that as a church. In your name I pray.